together. Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Everything's running smoothly. And this right here, it's your KC Momo. No, no, no. It's a morning show. I'm not going to get that note today. Nope. Too early for all of that. My name's Hartzell. Happy Tuesday, Kansas City. You know what we do on Tuesdays. We take back America, reclaiming that radical history. Myself, Professor Harvey K., Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Believe it or not, Kansas City, we are all social democrats and if you don't believe me well guess what professor harvey k he's about to break it down because we are digging into fdr's economic bill of rights and this is actually kind of a part one episode maybe a prequels episode whatever you want to call it we're gonna wrap up this conversation on thursday because what professor harvey k has done and alan minsky who you'll be meeting on thursday he's the executive director over at progressive democrats of america what they have done is taken what fdr and a philip rand and MLK, folks who have proposed and championed the Economic Bill of Rights from FDR. Well, they have upgraded it, updated it for the 21st century. So today you get your foundation. And on Thursday, my friends, we make this thing ours in the 21st century. The Economic Bill of Rights. Rate, review, subscribe. Please do that thing you do, Kansas City, because we take so many walks on this show. Like yesterday, we played a bunch of music. We had comedy. Today, we're talking social democracy with the homies. Tomorrow, who knows what the hell we're doing tomorrow. Probably a sports thing tomorrow. We take walks, so rate, review, subscribe. It is always a good-ass day to be in Kansas City. And my name's Hartzell. Kitty says what up. Conditions ideal. We'll see ya in the morning. Oh, okay. Now I get the high note. Okay. Right when I say goodbye. <laughs> Bye. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K., my brother. Oh, you like that one? Put a little vibrato on that one, sir. I'm a little worried about your voice. (laughs) I know. know, I don't know if people realize that your voice, in fact, Wait a minute. We need to in- ensure. They used to do for those opera singers, they would ensure their vocal cords or something. It was out of uh, Switzerland or something. You can get it. Was in- it Lloyd's of London, I bet. Lloyd's of London. That is They'll, they'll ensure anything, I bet. We definitely need to get your vocal cords because people are waiting for your moment. They're waiting. 
Professor K. They're waiting for our moment because every week on Mr. Casey Morning Show, our moment is to reclaim that radical history of these here United States. And I feel like I can confidently say since I met you almost a year ago now. We got it kicked off with that Josh Hawley piece trying to reclaim yeah. reclaim the radical history before phony populists do. And, and now here we are. I feel like this long walk, you were trying to get me here. The Economic Bill of Rights from FDR. You know what's funny is that my original plan was to write a book about the Economic Bill of Rights. But someone, a lawyer, a famous law professor named Cass Sunstein had written that book. Not the book I would have written, but a book about the Second Bill of Rights speech. And he would treat it as a lawyer might treat it. But it would look like I was just following him if I tried to do it as a historian. So that's when my editor came up with the idea. No, sorry, I'm giving him too much credit. <laughs> I thought about the four freedoms and we worked it from there because the Economic Bill of Rights, in essence, emanates from the four freedoms. Though, as I discovered over the time I was working on that book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, and now, is that it actually all begins when he's running for president in 32, as we saw in his speech to the Commonwealth Club in the fall of 32 on the campaign trail, when he calls for an economic declaration of rights. So he had the Declaration of Independence in his mind as the basis for an economic declaration of rights for Americans to be able to undo the concentration of wealth and power that big corporate bosses had accumulated. And we just mentioned a few weeks ago when we were breaking down the State of the Union from President Biden, how, you know, ultimately it was a fine speech, but we think it's going to be forgotten. You know, when you mention FDR's Economic Bill of Rights speech, boom, everyone knows what that is. The Four Freedoms speech, boom. It blew my mind as I was doing my homework for this one. I forget that both the Four Freedoms and this one here, the Economic Bill of Rights, they were packed into the State of the Union speeches. He knew how important those speeches were, and those were the places where you could literally shape the American public imagination. And the sad thing is, is that we haven't seen that in a long time. I know Barack Obama had an amazing capacity to deliver speeches. He just never had the rhetoric to make that delivery historic. Professor Harvey K, you want to dive into this thing? Yeah, let's get to it, because this speech demands not lightheartedness. It demands determination. Today, we're going to deal with clearly one of the most important speeches of the Roosevelt administration years. I mean, in some ways, I would put this in the top three of his speeches. Yeah, top three, I think, of his speeches. First one is the 36 campaign speech. It's basically where he, he went radical, went all the way radical. People would laugh and say, why? What about the New Deal speech? What about this? I'm telling you, the 36 speech in Philadelphia in late June, I think it was, unbelievably super speech. The next major speech, in some ways, in some ways, the most important, the Four Freedom speech of January 6, 1941. That provided, I hate to reduce it to this, the slogan, the, the promise is a better way of putting it, the vision of what the American war effort was to be about. This speech, which I did the video, you should hook the video in at this, you know, with the Gravel people. I'm just going to put the video at the end. Let's put the whole video. Okay. Absolutely. Cool. Yep. That speech Jan on January 11th, 1944, the one we're going to deal with today, in many ways, the most radical of the, how can I put it? 
of the state, the most radical state of the union message ever. The Gravel people titled it the most radical presidential speech ever. It's close to that. Yes, it may well be that. We could play a dinner party game and debate one or the other. But he literally lays out a vision for a post-war social democratic America. And I've titled it in the volume, FDR and Democracy, we have accepted, so to speak, a second Bill of Rights, which are his own words. This is State of the Union delivered in Washington, January 11, 1944. I will note he did not go into Congress to deliver it. He was not feeling well. So he delivered it from the White House. I believe he then delivered it a second time for the sake of a national you know, address, fireside chat that same day. The video is available on YouTube. You'll play the audio here. That video was lost for many, 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 many years and recovered by Michael Moore and then used in his movie, his film, Capitalism, A Love Story. You'll have to allow me to read something. I will read my introductory paragraph to this speech. Then you will become FDR to read the opening paragraph. It's a tall task, Professor K. A tall task, right. (laughs) Then we'll move on and then I will speak, Well, because we can't do the whole speech. I will then speak his introduction to the section of the speech where the Bill of Rights idea presents itself. And then I will have you, if you don't mind, actually read his proposal for the Bill of Rights. Then I'll come back to a paragraph, which isn't the last paragraph, but it says it all, or at least all that we need tonight. Let's do it. With the tide of war definitely moving in favor of the United States and its United Nations allies, Roosevelt returned in his 1944 State of the Union address to his idea of creating a declaration of economic rights that he had mentioned, suggested, proposed in 1932. And securing the four freedoms. In other words, those are those two moments I referred to before in 1941 with the four freedoms. After urging Americans to continue to give their all to the war effort and strongly warning them against those who might place greed above patriotism, he stated, we have accepted, so to speak, a second Bill of Rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station, race, or creed. Today, we would say regardless of class, race, or religion. And he proceeded to propose nothing less than an economic Bill of Rights for all Americans. He did so confident that most Americans would support the idea, for surveys commissioned by the White House had indicated that the great majority of Americans definitely wanted to establish national health care, greater educational opportunities, and an expanded social security program. I'll just note, at this moment, close to 85% of Americans, Republicans and Democrats alike, wanted national health care. Roosevelt also knew, however, that as much as Americans might support his call, the conservative coalition in Congress and powerful corporate business interests would vehemently oppose it. Nevertheless, he hoped Americans might one day secure such a Bill of Rights. Now over to you. To the Congress, this nation in the past two years has become an active partner in the world's greatest war against human slavery. We have joined with like-minded people in order to defend ourselves in a world that has been gravely threatened with gangster rule. But I do not think that any of us Americans can be content with mere survival. Sacrifices that we and our allies are making impose upon us all a sacred obligation to see to it that out of this war, we and our children will gain something better than mere survival. We are united in determination that this war shall not be followed by another interim which leads to new disaster, 
that we shall not repeat the tragic errors of ostrich isolationism, that we shall not repeat the excesses of wild 20s when this nation went for a joyride on a roller coaster which ended in a tragic crash. The overwhelming majority of our people have met the demands of this war with magnificent courage and understanding. They have accepted inconveniences. They have accepted hardships. They have accepted tragic sacrifices. And they are ready and eager to make whatever further contributions are needed to win the war as quickly as possible. If only they are given the chance to know what is required of them. However, while the majority goes on about its great work without complaint, a noisy minority maintains an uproar of demands for special favors for special groups. There are pests who swarm through the lobbies of the Congress and the cocktail bars of Washington representing these special groups as opposed to the basic interest of the nation as a whole. They have come to look upon the war primarily as a chance to make profits for themselves at the expense of their neighbors. Profits in money or in terms of political or social preferment. Such selfish agitation can be highly dangerous in wartime. It creates confusion. It damages morale. It hampers our national effort. It muddies the water and therefore prolongs the war. If ever there was a time to subordinate individual or group selfishness to the national good, that time is now. So FDR goes on to propose a series of laws in order to tame the selfishness, the greed. Now, it's interesting that in this, he includes a national service law. Four of the laws he's going to propose basically are to tame business. The last one seems to be a way of taming workers who have occasionally gone out on wildcat strikes. But if you but if you look closely, it's as if he added that in just as a way to show that he wasn't taking sides. He clearly was on the side of working people, but was really driving him bananas. And that's a terrible way to put it. What's driving him crazy is the degree to which the capitalists were already warming up to make money and to continue to make money after the war at the expense of working people. Well, in any case, he is now going to go on, as we'll see to lay out a vision of a social democratic America, as I mentioned before. Can I ask you a question, Harvey? Because I feel like the parallels are, are right there. At what point are we in the war when this speech happens? The war essentially began for the United States during 1941. It truly began as a military conflict in December 1941 when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. 1942 was a terrible year. 1943 was a challenging year. 1944 is where the United States military and its allies began to turn the tide of war. Beginning of 44, they believe they can possibly beat the Germans over the horizon. The Japanese, they were concerned about how they could bring Japan to its knees for an unconditional surrender. But it's not over yet. It's a tough war ahead. But he's trying to get Americans to think beyond the war. Am I answering your question? Well, I think you're about to make my point in that I see the parallel now as we're not over with COVID, but we're not hearing the right. promise. Right. sure as hell could use a good vision right now. You exactly. bet. Exactly. Especially right. as we have folks who want to call themselves wartime presidents in a pandemic. Well, what is the post-wartime reality? That's right. And don't forget, FDR knows they want that vision. They've done the surveys. They've asked Americans. And they want a social democratic America. 
So this speech is not something that sort of pops into his head. Hey, this is a good time to bring up the four freedoms again, that kind of stuff. No, no, no. He is putting into words, articulating what Americans themselves want, what they're yearning to see happen after the war comes to an end. Didn't mean to catch you off. Sorry. No, no, no. That's cool. That's exactly what we need. You know, people probably say to themselves, all they do is read these speeches. They want to hear their voices in their own terms. So there you go. Okay. So we've jumped to the last part of the speech, the most memorable part of the speech. And I don't just mean memorable as in, hey, let's think back. I mean, the part of the speech that should lead us to action. And you'll see next week when my colleague Alan Minsky joins Hartzell and me here on the show, FDR speaking now. Our soldiers and sailors and Marines know that the overwhelming majority of them will be deprived of the opportunity to vote if the voting machinery is left exclusively to the states under existing state laws. Let me explain. I should have said that's not FDR saying I'm going to explain. Okay. (laughs) The big question was there were so many millions of American young men and women overseas. How could they get to vote in 1944? Congress the Democrats-controlled Congress, Congress proposed a set of laws governing the GI's capacity to vote, enabling them to vote. The problem is this. The liberals and progressives wanted the federal government to handle the project. The folks from Dixie, the Southern Democrats, they didn't want that because that meant that black soldiers overseas And white soldiers who themselves would have been deprived of the vote because of poll taxes and literacy requirements, they would get to vote. I mean, they really did not like that. So it was a real battle. Plus, the Republicans were not too keen on the idea of soldiers voting. Why? Because they figured all these working class men who are in uniform, they're going to vote for FDR. They don't stand a chance of beating FDR. So here is FDR saying, Look, our soldiers and sailors and Marines know the overwhelming majority of them will be deprived of the opportunity to vote if the voting machinery is left to the states under existing state laws and that there's no likelihood of these laws being changed in time to enable them to vote the next election. So what he is pushing for is that Congress must remove unjustifiable discrimination against the men and women in our armed forces. People ignore this paragraph all too often. FDR in this speech, this is January of 44, is already calling for the right to vote for all soldiers, black and white, or I should say white and black. By the way, later he will return to this speech theme in the fall and actually in a follow-up speech call for the end to discrimination in voting rights. People don't pay attention to the details. We're giving our listeners the details. That's why we take back America, Professor Case. FDR then went on to say, it is our duty now to begin to lay the plans and determine the strategy for the winning of a lasting peace and the establishment of an American standard of living higher than ever before known. We cannot be content, no matter how high that general standard of living may be, if some fraction of our people, whether it be one third or one fifth or one tenth, is ill-fed, ill-clothed, ill-housed, and insecure. This republic had its beginning and grew to its present strength under the protection of certain inalienable political rights, among them the right of free speech, free press, free worship, trial by jury, freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures. They were our rights to life and liberty. As our nation has grown in size and stature, however, as our industrial economy has expanded, these political rights proved inadequate to assure us equality in the pursuit 
of happiness. We have come to a clear realization of the fact that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Quote, necessitous men are not free men. Unquote. People who are hungry and out of a job are the stuff of which dictatorships are made. In our day, these economic truths have been accepted as self-evident. We have accepted, so to speak, a second Bill of Rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless, and he repeats, of station, race, or creed. Hartzell, you have the honor. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job in the industries or shops or farms or mines of the nation, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living, the right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad, the right of every family to a decent home, the right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health, the right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment, the right to a good education. All of these spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. America's own rightful place in the world depends in large part upon how fully these and similar rights have been carried into practice for our citizens. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. Well said. Now, Hartzell, I will then offer FDR's warning and challenge. One of the great American industrialists of our day, a man who has rendered yeoman service to his country in this crisis, recently emphasized the grave dangers of rightist reaction in this nation. Right-wing reaction is what he's referring to. We may need to bring that term back, Harvey. I think so. I think so. All clear-thinking businessmen share his concern. Indeed, if such reactions should develop, if history were to repeat itself and we were to return to the so-called normalcy of the 1920s, then it is certain that even though we shall have conquered our enemies on the battlefields abroad, we should all have yielded to the spirit of fascism here at home. I want to pause for a moment and point out what he's talking about is the corporate bosses who would be willing to crush democracy for their own power and profits. And that, he's saying, would be fascism. And then he goes on. I asked the Congress to explore the means for implementing this economic bill of rights, for it is definitely the responsibility of the Congress so to do. Many of these problems are already before committees of the Congress in the form of proposed legislation. I shall, from time to time, communicate with the Congress with respect to these and further proposals. In the event that no adequate program of progress is evolved, I am certain that the nation will be conscious of the fact our fighting men abroad and their families at home expect such a program and have the right to insist upon it. It is to their demands that this government should pay heed rather than to the whining demands of selfish pressure groups who seek to feather their nests while young Americans are dying. This is an important concluding paragraph. I have often said that there are no two fronts for America in this war. 
there is only one front. There is one line of unity which extends from the hearts of the people at home to the men of our attacking forces in our farthest outposts. When we speak of our total effort, we speak of the factory and the field and the mine as well as of the battleground. We speak of the soldier and the civilian, the citizen and his government. Each and every one of us has a solemn obligation under God to serve this nation in its most critical hour, to keep this nation great, to make this nation greater in a better world. By the way, I'll just, this is me now speaking. That's a president who knew how to make America great. Er, great er. Okay. The, the playbook has always been there. Again, that's another reason why we, we do this segment every week. On the left, so many of us act like we don't have any history to draw from. And then am I, am I talking in circles? You tell me. No, no, no. That's exactly. The problem is that we've come to know and share the story of the exploitation, the oppression, the mass murders, the KKK, the proud boys of the day. We know about that. It's also the case is that the struggle for the promise of America continues and will continue because we carry it and we advance it when we not just vote, but when we organize, when we mobilize, when we create labor unions, when we create community groups, when we march for Black Lives Matter, for the whole array of endeavors that we pursue in favor of freedom, equality, and democracy. FDR teed this up. It's not identity politics. It's not CRT. It's not any of that nonsense. Dr. Seuss books is leading us to fascism. It is the loss of the working class. Where do folks go when they're not being presented with anything? They go to strong men who co-op things that they don't actually believe. And that had nothing to do with a bathroom bill or a bad critical race book from Robin DeAngelis. You know what I mean? <laughs> and by the way, as you, as you know, Next week, we're going to talk about the revival of the struggle for an economic bill of rights. And I'll just pave the way there and say, FDR proposed an economic bill of rights. A. Philip Randolph heard it and embraced it and made it central to his vision as a labor and civil rights leader for a late 20th century end of poverty and for freedom, equality and democracy and racial justice. Martin Luther King Jr. called for an economic bill of rights. I could go on and on, but I won't. Next week, we, with Alan Minsky, the head of Progressive Debt, the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, we will take up a 21st century economic bill of rights that he and I are proposing by standing on the shoulders of FDR, A. Philip Randolph, Martin Luther King Jr., Bernie Sanders, and with our arm extended and hers to us, Nina Turner. I think that is an excellent segue, my friend. And the only better punctuation to, I think, an excellent episode is I think after this, we're going to insert the Gravel episode that you did, that video that they posted. Also, Harvey, I think I can confidently say the next episode, it might be our most important one. It could be. Could be. My brother, Professor Harvey K. Where can folks find you on the internet? Harvey, J-K-A-Y-E on Twitter. And my books are readily available at all the online places. If you're interested in the stuff we're doing right now, go look for The Fight for the Four Freedoms or FDR on Democracy. Fight continues, my brother, but we got the village and we got the solidarity. My comrade, until next week. You got it. Cut off the bodies of my feelings. Made me watch my Took me down to the police. me with the song. A smile on her face. She does what she wants to me. 
Christina That's all she thinks about No responsibility, no guilt, a moral's cloud of judgment Smile on her face, she does what she damn well please Right, and she don't care what kind of things people used to do And she don't care that what she does has an effect on you She's got freedom in the 21st century Do you believe in the promise proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence? Do you believe that all of us are created equal and that we have a natural right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? And do you also believe that we should guarantee those rights to all Americans? Of course you do. So let's think about what that means. On January 11, 1944, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, FDR, delivered his 11th State of the Union message to Congress. The United States was in the middle of its biggest and most consequential war, pitted against Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. But Roosevelt didn't just talk about winning the war, he also spoke of what Americans needed to do to win the peace to come. In a speech to Congress that day, he called for a new Bill of Rights, an economic Bill of Rights. In the 1930s, Roosevelt and the American people had fought the Great Depression, the worst economic and social catastrophe in U.S. history. Rallying to the President's New Deal, they not only had revived the economy, they had also subjected business and finance to public supervision and regulation, empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people, mobilized and organized labor unions and civil rights groups, established a social security system, expanded and upgraded the nation's public infrastructure, improved the environment, and cultivated and promoted the arts. In 1941, however, Americans confronted a new crisis, the Second World War. But here, too, they went all out. In fact, they not only did all they could to fight fascism overseas, but also fought for democracy at home by dramatically expanding the labor and civil rights movements. And by early 1944, there was good cause to believe both that victory might soon be at hand and that further progressive action was possible. At the outset of the State of the Union speech, Roosevelt urged Americans to sustain the war effort. But he also now looked ahead, confident that Americans who had achieved so much wanted to not only revive the New Deal, but in every way expand upon it. Opinion polls conducted in 1943 indicated, for example, that 83% of Americans wanted a guarantee of health care for all. 73% supported launching new public works programs. 
and 79% wanted a federal jobs guarantee. Though he was too sick to appear in person before Congress to deliver the speech, Roosevelt went on radio and delivered a spirited address. And after reviewing the continuing war effort, he turned to the question of the post-war peace effort in the United States. This republic, he said, had its beginning and grew to its present strength under the protection of certain inalienable rights. They were our rights to life and liberty. As our nation has grown in size and stature, however, as our industrial economy expanded, these political rights proved inadequate to assure us equality in the pursuit of happiness. The words that followed are among the most radical in presidential history. We have come, FDR contended, to a clear realization of the fact that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Necessitous men are not free men. What he then proposed would be seen as far left today, though as he reminded his fellow Americans, it was not a repudiation of the promises enshrined in the Declaration and the Bill of Rights, but a continuation and realization of them. Indeed, only with economic rights could political rights be made real. As Roosevelt said, In our day, certain economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. A second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. The rights Roosevelt was proposing, a right to a home, to health care, to earn enough money to live comfortably, a guaranteed job, would be called socialism or even communism by today's conservatives. But whatever they might be labeled, they were rooted, as FDR made clear, in America's promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Empowered by the aspirations of those who had fought the Depression and were now fighting fascism, Roosevelt was projecting a path to a better, brighter, happier and healthier future. All of these rights, he said, spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. But FDR knew all too well that there were those who would fiercely oppose them, as they always had. And he warned his fellow citizens against what he called the grave dangers of rightist reaction. What Roosevelt laid out in his State of the Union was something simple, but radical. It was that history wasn't something to be left in the past, but to be constantly renewed and remade. New times demand new freedoms. Just a few years earlier, his Solicitor General, Robert H. Jackson, a future Supreme Court Justice, told the members of the National Lawyers Guild, we too are founders. We, too, are makers of a nation. We, too, are called upon to write, to defend, and to make live new bills of right. At a demonstration in New York City, 1.4 million people showed up to hear Senator Robert Wagner enthusiastically defend the call for a second Bill of Rights. Labor and civil rights groups actively campaigned for it. And in the presidential election later that year, Roosevelt won a fourth term as president with a resounding 432 electoral votes. Roosevelt would not live to achieve his dream. At his fourth and final inauguration in 1945, he appeared sick and frail. 
While he was getting his portrait painted just a few months later in Warm Springs, Georgia, he put his hand over his forehead, slumped over, and died. The second Bill of Rights was never realized. The forces of rightist reaction that FDR had warned of were too powerful. Corporate executives and conservatives soon took to fomenting Cold War fears and purging public life of leftists, not only to block the hope for revival and expansion of the New Deal, but also to crush the very idea and memory of Roosevelt's proposed economic Bill of Rights. That doesn't mean, of course, that his vision has to remain shrouded and forgotten. What FDR promised, though still radical, remains deeply possible if we have the will to recover it and to advance it. We, too, can be founders. We, too, can be makers of a nation. We, too, are called upon to write, to defend, to make live new bills of rights. I'm Harvey Kay, Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, for the Gravel Institute. <laughs>